Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we are joined by Juliet Kayam to talk about her new book, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. In academia, the private sector, government, and media, Kayam is a national leader in homeland security, cybersecurity, resiliency, and safety. She is currently a professor in international security at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. She is the CEO of Grip Mobility, a technology platform that provides audio and video capabilities for rideshare companies to increase the security for their drivers and riders. She was named Inc. Magazine's Top 100 Female Founders in 2019. She is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. In government, she recently served as Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security, where she played a pivotal leadership role in major operations, including the H1N1 pandemic and the BP oil spill response. Before that, she has served in a variety of other leadership posts. You can see Juliet on CNN, where she is their go-to commentator during a disaster. She is also a weekly guest on Boston's NPR program. In 2013, she was named a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her editorial columns in the Boston Globe. She continues to write columns for several outlets, including The Washington Post and The Atlantic. I am very pleased to have her on the show today to discuss her exciting new book, The Devil Never Sleeps, which you can find on Amazon.com and anywhere else where you buy books. Juliet Kayam, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I know you as your and your very distinguished history, uh, both in terms of academia, but also uh, in government. But a lot of our listeners don't. So tell us about your background and why you're the person to talk to about disasters. Well, thanks so much for having me, first of all. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I like to say people have different kinds of careers. I like to say I've had one career and many jobs. And uh, and that is uh, that's worked for me. I've been essentially in the risk reduction uh, crisis management stage, but I did. Uh, I've spent time in government service in counterterrorism at first, uh, and then in state government as a state homeland security advisor, and then most recently as assistant secretary at DHS for Obama. I have. Uh, I'm a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School. I do a lot of corporate. Uh, and private sector advising. So I have a good transparency on that and, and the differences with that, uh, with that group. And I also, uh, like and do a lot of media. I'm an on-air analyst for CNN. I, uh, write a column for the Atlantic and, uh, uh, I do a weekly segment on our local NPR. So I, all of those different things are being able to respond, prepare, and communicate about really scary things that mo, that, that cause most people to either tune out or freak out. I, I sort of like to try to find that that place in between. Well, there's so much that I want to talk to you about in the short time that I have you. But first, let's plug your book, The Devil Never Sleeps. So uh, tell us, uh, give us a brief overview of the book and what motivated you to write the book. 
That's great. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, every plug is a good plug. So thank you so much. Uh, so I, you know, this is, this is the, the, you know, everyone has an idea they've been thinking about for 20 years. And then finally COVID just sort of got me to sit down. It's not a COVID book. Uh, it is a book about rethinking disaster management. I think we're thinking and judging disaster management all wrong in our era. Uh, so the book is part opening the curtain for readers simply to see how my profession works because it can seem really odd and part history of what went right and wrong in previous uh, crises. And my goal is to reframe how we think about disasters and success. And essentially, in an age when disasters, any kind of disaster is are, are no longer random or rare, uh, we need to learn to fail safer. And that theme is throughout the book that we, and so to now go into my wonky world really quickly, I, I, I work in a very simple profession. We have two two periods of time. We have what's called left a boom, right? All the things we do to try to stop the bad thing from happening and right a boom, what we do to respond and recover. The boom, no notice, is like the devil. It's agnostic. It could be the pandemic. It could be cyber. It could be terrorism. It could be a climate event. It could be aliens, whatever. It, and we're so focused on particular threats, even COVID, that we. what I realized in my work in the field is that essentially this there, the commonalities are more relevant. And the commonalities basically tell me from, from, from looking at the Trojan horse uh, uh, and, and what that meant about communication to, uh, to Surfside, I get all the way up to Surfside in Florida, is, is we, can, we, we can take the commonalities and learn to be prepared for the moment of the boom because it will certainly uh, come. So that is uh, essentially the lesson. So I'm really focused on now, right? So I, I want to be clear here. I hope people stop the terrorists, mitigate climate change, all of those things. I want people to be good at that. I also love thinking about resiliency in the future and, and all that stuff. I, this book is about now because uh, we're all crisis managers now. So its audience is, is uh, for the leader of a home, the leader of a, of a, of a small business, big business, institutional leaders, uh, and those who have experienced um, all of us uh, uh, a disaster and just want to know you know, that, that the, the randomness is less random. And that's why I think it's being, you know, it's getting, it's getting good reviews. And I, I hope so. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and one of the consistent themes is it's sort of accessibility and engagement. And, and that, to your second question, that was really important to me. I, I'm a professor at Harvard, I, I can write the books that no one reads, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to write a book that uh, that drew readers in through stories of disasters, but also made you rethink how to judge that disaster and actually what happened. Because we, we, we tend to think that the boom or some disaster, you know, is, is, as I say in the book, is, is a, a misalignment of the stars, right? In fact, the word disaster comes, you know, comes from dis and astro, right? So it's like some sense of, you know, mankind or humankind in some passive role. And I thought I wanted to tell stories that gave people agency, because I think that's really important to important now. I think uh, instead of feeling like we're sort of victims all the time, which certainly the world has given a lot of us every reason to think that, uh, that, that what I want to do is, is also provide not perfection, not 
roses and unicorns and rainbows on the other side of whatever horror we're in today, just a, a chance to make things less bad. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I was listening to some radio host recently who was saying, don't let these people tell you they can get rid of all risk. You know, the world is dangerous. There's nothing we can do about it. And I felt like, you know, that's not really what people like Juliet Kayam are saying. They're not saying we can get rid of all risk. And so in between defeatism, like we can't do anything and perfection, we can totally eliminate risk. There's a way for us to make the world better, maybe not perfect, but better. Now, now, like less bad. And that was that's exactly where I am. You know, and I go up against my own party. I'm a, a Democrat, so you could tell from my history. You know, this idea that that a reduction in risk, let's say from COVID, is not good. That somehow we have to be thinking about risk elimination or focusing on those still dying. Like, like I get it. We need to focus on those still dying. But that number, you and I are speaking on a day when probably a thousand people will die or 1100 people will die. That's a number we have to focus on. But that number is, and it's the same number that we saw in 2021, the numbers are consistent, but that number also reflects a country that is open up. And so Mm -hmm. that balance, that risk offset, that risk calculation is something that is actually good, right? Because the, the, the thousand dead when you're locked inside when we're all locked inside and most importantly, our kids are not in school is really, really had consequences. So I've been, I've been pushing my party in terms of schools, in terms of uh, uh, vaccinations, in terms of, 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 of moving forward. Uh, But without, you know, you don't, doesn't mean that then you have to say it never happened. I don't have a responsibility to get vaccinated or uh, we just need to move on, right? There's a, there is that, there's that place now where you're just calculating different risks. So one of the many virtues of this book is that in each chapter, you use a real world example to demonstrate the arguments and the lessons that you're trying to impart to readers. So one of the examples you use, a really powerful one, is the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan. So tell us about that disaster and the lessons that we should learn about risk management. The book doesn't condemn, like, I mean, you know, look, companies do stupid things. People are not great. Like, I, like that's, as once again, I can sit in moral judgment in my house, right? That's not my goal here. My goal is, you know, the, as I said, to fail safer. So the, 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 the Fukushima was, of course, in, um, in 2011, uh, there was a, a massive earthquake out in the ocean leading to a tsunami, uh, leading to uh, the nuclear meltdown. So there's, there's a history and warnings to this story that just when I talk about how did I want to tell the story, I wanted people to understand. The first is, of course, is, is these stones that existed uh, above the, the shoreline at Fukushima. Uh, tsunamis are not new to the area. These stones were engraved uh, hundreds of years earlier. Uh, warning not to build below where the stones were. In fact, it said the peace and harmony of mankind and your descendants uh, depends on you not building uh, below the shoreline. But they built. Pretty good warning. Pretty good warning. Yeah. yeah. yeah but they built. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm somewhat forgiving of that in the sense like societies do change. Their risk calculations mm-hmm. change. Fuku- uh, Japan grew. It also... Uh, fast forward, needed nuclear energy. It was a, mm-hmm. a country that did not want to be dependent on others. So the second piece of history is, of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, when Japan is 
attacked. Because Japan is the only country that has suffered a nuclear attack, its relationship with nuclear is complicated. And so in order to build a nuclear industry, the country essentially sold a lie to the populations to, 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 uh, to, to quell potential community unrest. And that was in the perfect safety or perfect security of, of, um, of nuclear. Well, once again, that's a lie. That's a myth. And, and it didn't teach itself to fail safely. Okay. So fast forward. So that's the, that's the sort of story behind a disaster that was avoidable. So the Fukushima sets off radiation. 50,000 people have to be evacuated. Uh, and that's the end of story. So, right. So we think what a horrible disaster. Nuclear energy is inevitably unsafe, blah, 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 right? It's, it starts this narrative that we continue today, our, our uncomfortableness, once again, my party's uncomfortableness with nuclear energy, where I think it, it, it can be done safely. So yeah, I it tell had very story, real impacts on, on, on oh, Germany, planning, right? Germany, yeah, ab yeah. Germany abandoned it. This is, and now we're in the Ukraine issue, right? Germany abandoned it. So, um, uh, so I tell the story of Onagawa, another nuclear facility and uh, that we don't hear about because we only hear the bad news. Onagawa was closer to the earthquake and closer to the ocean. It took the stone seriously and it took and it ignored the warnings of the government that, that, uh, that it's in, that the industry uh, was sort of perfectly safe. And so it, uh, it learned to fail safely and tested for failing safely. It had, uh, I won't get into the all wonky details, but it had just a response capacity that was prepared to shut down uh, when uh, the signs of the disruption started to appear. So just imagine two moments in Fukushima up the street, you have the response people both unprepared, but also not authorized to respond. So they're calling Tokyo, which is consistent with uh, the culture of management in that country. Uh, and then you have Onagawa, where they are like, we don't need to call anyone. We're shutting this thing down. No radiation leak in Onagawa. Uh, uh, though Onagawa was closed because it was it was harmed it, 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 uh, from the from the earthquake, and then Fukushima, which caused radiation. So I just want people to think like, okay, that's going to make me. Uh, realize that my investments in failing safely not only, you know, will save lives and, and the environment, but will change a narrative about inherently risky world. Like, I, like the idea I've been in, I should say, I'll end this. I've been in this space a long time. I'm on CNN where things are not, you know, are 45 seconds. And I'll often get asked like, well, is it safe? And I just want to be like, I don't know that world. Like I know safer. And, right. and then what's, what are my, what are my attributes for safer? Well, in the Japanese example you just gave, wasn't that, uh, in one place nuclear was completely safe, but as you've said, like, uh, the, the degree of safety is much different in one area because they prepare left of the boom, right. Compared to right. another. Um, right. so, uh, why? So you mentioned um, when we were off the air before the show, you mentioned all these academic books that you have and all these uh, articles you write for other academics. And I, I certainly, as an academic myself, I understand that journal articles really are being written for academics. It's a conversation about advancing methodology and that kind of stuff. Why do you want the public to read this book? And that's who this, this book was written for. Right. And it's, it's well... Well, I mean, first, because like, co it's not a book specifically about COVID, but uh, none of us are immune from the necessity of understanding how disaster management works, both good and bad. It makes us better. The second is we all have leadership roles, uh, even in our own home. So I talk about that, but, but in whatever institution we're in, 
in which our capacity to engage on this issue begins today. Uh, so I wa really want to fight this notion that you hear a lot of times about a finish line, right? This is, you know, this is, that's like a myth or, or, or the new normal. I, I, you know, we're better off just not thinking about a normal or, or abnormal that, that our, our societies can be disrupted. And what do we want to do to, to protect ourselves during, during them? So that's the starting point that, that, uh, because disaster management, uh, better disaster management is owned by all of us that uh, all of us need to engage. So, but the best way to engage is through stories because people can relate to them. They understand them or they had heard something about it, the space shuttle challenger or the Suez canal. Like those are stories that are really important. Uh, uh, but they also, are engaging. And that's, that was really important to me because uh, if I have any skill, maybe it's that capacity to find that lane between terror and, you know, ignoring and, and try to get people to engage because we can do things today. All of the examples you give in the book are really interesting. Um, I think the Challenger space shuttle disaster is one that a lot of people will remember. A lot of us were watching and um, it's just a really powerful example. So tell us in your profession, what are some things that should have been learned from that disaster? Right. So this was, uh, uh, I use this example uh, to tell the story of a man named Charles McDonald. Uh, Charles McDonald, people who studied the Challenger, which is one of the most studied disasters, uh, was literally a man uh, in the cheap seats. He was a contractor for a company, uh, but that company was in charge of something called the O-ring. The O-ring is ultimately was the was the thing that triggered the explosion. Uh, he knew it uh, could not survive the colder weathers leading to warmer weathers. It was the expansion and refused the day before to sign the document. NASA, on the other hand, is getting pressure from the president and the White House to get to get the Challenger up in space because it was the first teacher. The State of the Union was supposed to be that night. He wanted them up in right. Reagan wanted them up in space. Uh, so I use that example. So so McDonald refuses to sign it. His company overrules him. They sign it for him. Uh, and and he is sort of the, the the man in the back yelling, do not do this. So that when it happens, he calls his daughter crying. And she just says it's the only time she ever saw her father cry and say, I did everything I could, but I am glad I did not sign that document. Right. And he, he, he knew. So I use that as an example to say, we have to be receptive to criticism. In other words, we, we cannot focus it. I will, I want to fast forward a little bit. The whitewashing of the challenger was so strong that the, an independent commission was formed. They were meeting. NASA was kind of BSing their way through the testimony, to be honest. Uh, and McDonald is sitting in the back. They are not discussing the O-ring. McDonald stands up in the back. He's not a witness. He's he's he just stands up as a as a, he says, "I need to tell you something. Here's who I am. You need to look into the O-ring." And the independent, uh, the Congressional Commission looking into the shuttle looked at the O-ring. Uh, so so. And, and, and basically realized that NASA had become an institution that normalized deviance. Normalization of deviance is once again a wonky term, uh, but it's just a way of, uh, of creating institutions that ignore the, uh, the uh, near misses. So 
lots of data points were telling NASA, don't put the Challenger up. They kept normalizing all those all those weird things, whether it was the O-ring, whatever. So they normalized deviance. Well, cumulatively, that deviance brought down the shuttle. And so that's how I want people to think about it, about that reception to critique, uh, because that person isn't undermining you. They're, they actually could save lives. So you talk about something really interesting in this book that um, I'm not a disaster person, so I didn't know this term. But when you said it, it just clicked in my brain like, oh, my gosh, I have seen that occurring endlessly in our society. You talk about something called the preparedness paradox. So um, tell us what that is. I see that happening all around us all the time. So the preparedness yeah, so paradox. It, it is. It's, so it's a, as I said, I want to uh, tell the public, so wh- how does my field work, right? And so, and why aren't people doing things? Because if everything's so obvious that bad things are going to happen, remember, I'm agnostic about what the devil is. Why, why can't we get better prepared? And one explanation, which resonates in my field, is something called the preparedness paradox, which is more, the more investment you put into being prepared, the less likely it is that the bad thing happens, or if it does happen, that its consequences are significant. And then you're stuck justifying why the heck did you get so nervous in the first place, right? So, so it's been a challenge. And the best example of that, of course, is Y2K, when everyone is freaking out about the computers you know, going from 1999 to 2000, uh, billions of dollars are invested in fixing the computers. Not much happens on midnight of New Year's Eve. And then everyone says, and then there's an almost immediate narrative that that was a much ado about nothing. Uh, no, it's a narrative about, wow, our focus on preparing for the boom limited the consequences. There were some disruptions, but limited some of the consequences. So, uh, so we, so the, the answer to the, preparedness paradox is to not view it as preparedness. I mean, now, if we can make disaster management standard operating procedure, rather than the blip, we will be much better off. So uh, we're a world that, as you mentioned, is is increasingly awash in, in uh, these major events, these disasters, these negative events. Um, and so a couple that stick out to me that uh, we're going to have to be thinking about, I mean, for instance, wildfires, right? Mm-hmm. So this is something that uh, is only increasing in seriousness and frequency. And so from your perspective, what are some of the big mistakes we make in preparedness for wildfires? What should we be rethinking about those? Yeah. So, and I have a a, a, a lot on wildfires for, for reasons uh, that are explained in the book. I did some work in paradise, but also the history of firefighting is really some of the basis of the disaster management we know today, including all, including the lesson, always know where your fire is, right? Cause, cause we've, in, in, we all, firefighter fatalities are almost always when they lose transparency or situational awareness of, of, of where the fire is. So this is the area where we have to think about fighting the devil, in this case, fire, uh, through managed retreat. That we that that yes, there's a lot we can do to protect houses, a lot we can do to protect infrastructure, uh, create transparency or create uh, notifications so people are better prepared when you think about paradise. Uh, but there are also serious discussions about whether there are certain places, not a lot, in which the the expectation that we still live there needs to be reconsidered. Uh, these are. Globally, these are known as climate refugees. We don't have that problem in this country, but that we essentially pay people uh, to to retreat. 
uh, because we've built in ways that are not sustainable. I actually think with a combination of, 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 of uh, cutting down trees or you know, deforesting, new building, new building features, better infrastructure and road, uh, road capacity, we can do a lot to save lives. So when you think about paradise, there's the big issue of should they even live there in paradise, uh, California. And that's a debate they're having now as more people either return or, or decide not to return. Uh, but uh, in the moment of the fire, most people died stuck in their cars on a single lane highway. Uh, so those things we can fix, those things we can fix. You don't want a single point of failure, right? So if you're going to, if you are going to live on a cliff with woods, essentially, that's what paradise is. You have, you have, or go, you have to, uh, uh, create capacity to get out quickly. And that will change the nature of paradise, larger lanes and stuff, but that's, that's a livable change. All right. So, uh, biggest mistake we made before we got to get you out of here quickly, but, uh, biggest mistake we made before COVID hit and the biggest mistake we made after in your estimation. Okay. So, uh, so I, that's easy. So before, uh, uh, the biggest mistake was January to March, 2020, when we knew, we knew anyone who, and I'm not even a doctor that a pandemic in China, then in Italy was likely to hit, hit here. And we did not build, build capacity or communicate to the public what was likely to happen. And, and I describe in the book, people like me who have very limited platforms compared to the government were trying to urge people and saying, look, there, I know what's about to happen, get ready. And, and my first article for the Atlantic was entitled America, you have no idea what's about to happen. It came out in early March, 2020 afterwards. And this is maybe, you know, this is political. This is my politics. I wish that we had done more vaccine mandates early so that the politics of both vaccines and mandates wouldn't have taken and entrenched so many people. And I say this as someone who wants more people to be vaccinated, but also believe that th that those who are unvaccinated are not headstrong in that opinion. They just needed a push, a lot of them. I mean, you know, there's the those that will never get vaccinated. I get it. And that push could have come in the form of you know, you can't go to a football game, you can't get into an airplane. Those mandates did work in the public sector. We have to remember that those worked incredibly well, the private sector. Uh, and I wish we had done that earlier, because what happened over time was then you just had this entrenchment of that it becomes a proxy for I'm a Democrat or Republican, or I'm conservative or not conservative, which is ridiculous, because the burden or the, the greatest consequences, of course, now of COVID are felt on those that are unvaccinated. So we want those people to survive. The best way we know for them to survive is, of course, to get vaccinated. All right. Well, the book is called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. You can find it on Amazon or any place that you buy books. Juliet, before you go, can you tell us how you came up with this title? So I, I tell the story uh, of a, a woman named Jane Cage in Joplin, Missouri. In my field, you get invited back. You get invited to disasters, uh, but you also get invited back uh, at these anniversaries. This was a year later. Uh, Jane had taken over the recovery of Joplin, a small town in Missouri that had lost over 100 people in a tornado in 2011. And uh, she was incredibly optimistic about uh, not just what jo Joplin could become, but but jo Joplin's capacity to withstand the next tornado. Uh, she was deeply religious, uh, but her religion wasn't uh, 
about deliverance or or God's way and this, you know, it was actually quite tactical and operational. I loved it, right? It was, it was, yeah, we're going to, more, more tornadoes will come. What is that telling me? I have, I'm a human being who has agency. So I said to her, I was like, how do you get like that? And she said, look, you know, I live in Missouri. There will be more tornadoes. Uh, the devil never sleeps, but he only wins if we don't do better next time. And I thought, less bad. That is, that's our, our 21st century standard, right? That, that if we can make things less bad in a world in which the devil will show its head, uh, that's our responsibility to each other and our responsibility uh, if we're in government or if we have, as we talked before, leadership roles uh, for uh, institutions, employees, or, or wherever. All right. Well, wherever you buy books, go grab a copy of The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters by Juliet Kayam. If there's anybody you should listen to on this topic, it's her. James Clapper, former National Intelligence Director, says, quote, Juliet Kayam's infectious energy and passion for reasoned crisis management jump out of the pages of her book. She has written a succinct, compelling kitchen table tutorial on how to get your head around crises a must-read for responders, crisis managers, and the normal citizen who wants to anticipate, prepare, cope, and be resilient, end quote. Juliet Kayam, thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thank you so much. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you, keep smiling until then, who cares about the clouds when we're together, just sing a song and bring the sunny weather, happy trails to you, till we meet Take a liking to you.